So a friend and I went uh, out to cycle out to Big Bay yesterday morning, and uh, we grabbed a coffee near Onsa Hasey for his birthday ride. And we started chatting there, like early morning, sun just coming up. And uh, we started chatting to a sand artist who, uh, who then whipped out his phone and started showing us his staggering portfolio of sand art. He was actually part of the Guinness World Record that built the highest ever sand art or sand castle. Um, and they did that in Disney somewhere and, you know, all kinds of stuff. So this guy's a, he's a professional sand artist. And, uh, yeah, just sand and water and the staggering stuff that he could do. In any case, he's really going through a tough time right now because a lot of his stuff is commercial. So, I mean, he will do a wedding proposal, a marriage proposal, for example, in the sand. So you plan it, gentlemen, you could hold up at the number. And then you can, wait, there's no one in this room who even is like thinking that way yet. But in any case, so he'll do sand art for you in different ways. Um, but one of the things he does is he does big corporate stuff. And big corporates are simply not doing stuff at the moment. Certainly not the, the level of stuff that would enable him to keep going. So the conversation moved to some very big concerns and big worries, massive things that interrupt the lives of sand artists and doctors and teachers and moms and dads and everyday people. For example, uh, the World Economic Forum report in January, if you wondered what your pastor talks about when he goes on a ride, what CEOs worldwide are worrying about. And then it was broken down by nation. So some guys are worrying about, the CEOs are worrying about the supply chain and its management and the way global politics is messing with their potential to do business. Others are worrying about labor and the stuff that's going on over there. Other people, their concern is keeping up with technology. And in South Africa, our biggest concern State collapse, the inability of the state. This is what the guys on the JSE are most worried about, that the state will stop providing what the state needs to provide, whether that's electricity or transport or health care or uh, a dozen other things, but literally the state will collapse. That's what companies in South Africa are mitigating against most right now. What a lovely way to start your Saturday morning birthday breakfast ride. And I just realized how pervasive concerns are and worries are in these uncertain times. Like deeply uncertain times. But the sand artist was not just the sand artist. He was also a philosopher. And he said, you know, us South Africans have become way too passive. We keep hoping that somebody else will fix things. I thought that was a bit deep. So today we start an Easter-defined series, not inspired by the sand artist. I've been working on it a little bit longer than that. Finding hope in uncertain times. Finding hope in uncertain times. And it's an Easter series. So that although it's not our reading for today, the series takes us through the Easter events and beyond them 
and connects them to the kind of things that we really face every day and that we're dealing with on a, on a day-to-day basis. You see, Easter and hope are inseparably connected. And if you'd like to read Tom Wright's Surprised by Hope, uh, that is a great book to read. I think we're getting one for the church library. But Paul, I'm sorry, in his first letter, the ap- Peter the Apostle, now an older apostle, he writes this. Uh, this is not my main reading. It's just sort of like an introduction to the series. First chapter 1 and verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his great mercy, in view of your great mercy we've just sung, in his great mercy, he's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. The way Peter approaches his everyday life has been completely transformed by the events of Easter. He cannot see things the same way because of everything he experienced over that time. Finding hope in uncertain times. I don't think there was any certainty and confidence for those early disciples as they watched Jesus walk the road to the cross. At that stage, already beaten, falsely accused, and nailed there, and and died there. Finding hope then in an empty tomb. But today, we precede that. Finding hope as Jesus announces himself as king. So we go to Matthew chapter 21. That's our reading for today. Jesus announces himself as king. And we're coming to the climax of the earthly life of Jesus. And the whole story matters. But as he approaches Jerusalem... And there's a suburb of Jerusalem near Mount of Olives called Bethphage. Jesus sent ahead two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with a colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them. And the person will send them right away. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you. Your king, gentle and riding on a donkey, actually on a colt, on the foal of the donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt. And they put their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees. I know there was mainly palm branches. I don't know if, you know, palm branches were mainly linked to the festival of booths, the tabernacles that they would build to remember their time in the wilderness. It seems that some Christmas had got stuck in Easter, you know, uh, that that sort of like palm branches as we read in the other Gospels, but just branches of trees in Matthew 
and they spread them out on the road. And what did they want to do? They wanted to create a surface that literally was just royally prepared. I mean, literally take the clothes of your back and throw them on the road surface so that a donkey can walk on them. What are you saying about the person sitting on the donkey? And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed behind were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. They were impressed. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. They were asking, who is this? And the crowds answered, those who were around him, those who walked with him, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Question, did Jesus see himself as only a prophet? So we come to these events. What's going on? I think Jesus is very deliberately fulfilling prophecy, intentionally arranging for this prophetic statement that comes from Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. It's almost grammatically, well, it's grammatically possible, but it's unlikely that even the quote from Zechariah verse 9 in the original Greek could have come from the lips of Jesus in this context. See, it is written. More likely from Matthew, because that's how the rest of the gospel works. But um, Jesus deliberately arranges, and Matthew sees this, and he recognizes this, and he wants us to understand what the people understood in the actions of Jesus. And he says, so this is what was written about. This is with Zechariah 9, verse 9. Your king is coming. So his disciples fetch it. Jesus is indicating he is, I am, the long-awaited Messiah. And he rides into Jerusalem that would have been unmistakable for any Jew in their messianic expectation of the time. Now, some people try, you know, donkeys were a fairly common form of transport. Some commentators try and minimize the event a bit, you know, kind of come to terms with the drastic change. How did Jesus get crucified four or five days later if this is all the excitement, uh, you know, going on at the time? But if, if this was just a pilgrim's welcome, then why were not all the pilgrims welcome? And why were the priests and the, you know, the, the Pharisees indignant? If you keep reading, you see they were really upset about what was going on and the fact that Jesus then cleared the temple of the money changers. Why did, in, in, in uh, I think it's Mark's gospel, the Pharisees demand of Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. This is completely inappropriate. Because everyone knew what Jesus was doing. He was finally, and in Mark's gospel, it's a secret all the way through. It's called the Messianic secret of Mark. It's a secret almost all the way through. Whenever anyone wants to call him the Messiah, he says, shut up, be quiet, don't tell anyone. Because there was this political charge around this place. They had 
huge implications. And Jesus is ready to face the political implications of claiming the title Messiah. He had not yet sufficiently revealed the Father's heart, his nature, the kingdom of God, up until that point. And such was the intensity of feeling at the time that it just burst into this public demonstration. See, pretty much everyone had heard of Jesus, maybe even seen him. But now this is Jesus himself unveiled. For the first time, he's not telling people to be silent. In fact, he's saying, if they are silent, the rocks will drop. And Luke stops him. So for the man in the street, the Jew under the oppression of Rome, here was this obviously wise, compassionate teacher. He could heal the sick, feed the thousands, even raise the dead. Finally, he's standing up. He's becoming king. We are going to overthrow Rome. Probably what they were thinking. They wanted a political messiah. Now, he has literally just come from raising Lazarus. And the news, according to John's gospel, is spreading like wildfire. There's two blind men who everybody knew from, you know, sort of like the road to Jericho that, that are now in the wake, and they can see. And at last, the hiding is over. Jesus seemingly coming as king, coming to take over. And so they shout this, Hosanna. Now, the word isn't reported in Luke because the Gentile readers would not have known that Hosanna was literally a transliteration from Psalm 118. In other words, they took the Hebrew and made it into an Aramaic word, a bit like potkos. You know, if you, you take the Afrikaans, it just becomes an English word. I mean, what is anything other than potkos? Road food is what the you know, crows eat. Um, and so this is your roadkill. Um, <laughs> Psalm 118, verse 25. It's this cry, Hosanna, which means, oh, God, come and save us. God, come and save us. Son of David, this is the greatest king Israel has ever had. And you're bearing his name and you're carrying his image and you have his mandate. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, Psalm 118. And they shouted their praise to God, Luke 19. Loud voices because of the miracles and the mighty acts they'd seen, John 11. And Jesus won't rebuke them. He knows the stones will crack. So how do we end at the cross after such a powerful statement? We need to understand that the whole Easter story is layered with politics, layered with power. It's, it's not just a religious story. It's deeply kind of layered with all these things. Many Jews assumed that if we could just get rid of Rome, get rid of Caesar, get rid of his governors and those garrison of soldiers and all their corrupt tax collectors and officials, Everything will be fine if we can just change who's in charge. 
So a change of government will fix everything or at least make it possible for us to fix things. That was the belief. That was like, like what we got to. And so nothing will change until they change. So their government, their powers, until Rome is overthrown. Sound like some of our conversation? And in their hope is this belief, if only we had their power. If only we had their influence. Ultimately, if only we had their swords and their soldiers, then we could save ourselves. And they believed that Jesus, who could heal the sick and raise the dead and feed, feed an army, wouldn't need the normal mechanics of power to give them what they want. What's truly ironic is that about 35 years later, the Palestinian Jews would rise up and they would overthrow the forces of Rome that were occupying their land. There was a massacre. At least 2,000 Roman uh, soldiers died at their garrison in Caesarea as the Jews planned, worked, and then came and slaughtered every Roman who was in Palestine. It happened, and the dating is a little bit unclear, around about 66, 67 AD. And for just a few short years, the influence was theirs, the power was theirs, the swords were theirs. They rose up and announced a Jewish kingdom, and it didn't make things any better. Historians record that more Jews died at the hands of other Jews during that time through the internal strife and struggle of people now trying to make it to the top of the tree of power, now trying to become the next Caesar, now trying to do what they saw the Romans do. More, more Jews died at the hands of their fellow Jews than those who died when the Romans returned under the general want then to become emperor after this great victory, Titus, who came in, and again, recent debate is whether it's in 66 or 70 AD, let's stick with the old days, 70 AD, they invade, they absolutely crush this Jewish kingdom, and they tear, as Jesus prophesied, stone from stone, and they leave Jerusalem itself, the temple and everything absolutely laid waste. It's easy to see and to point to the sin of others and to believe that if they will change, then everything will be fine. That's essentially what Israel was believing when Jesus rose into power in the desert. If everyone else will change, and let me be me, and if my influence and my power can have its final say, and even better, if God can make sure that my influence and my power and my sword has the final say, then we're going to be a-okay. If we can just change the government, we'll be fine. That belief cheered Jesus through the streets of Jerusalem and it 
endured Jesus all the way to the cross. Because you see, Jesus would have none of it. He wasn't going to be Messiah on their terms. They wanted this political military hero to beat up the enemies and sit on David's throne. And his mode of transport should have warned them. He's not on a stallion and he's not in a chariot. He's riding this little donkey. Instead of beating up Romans, he goes into the temple and beats up the money changers. The whole incident didn't get him any support from the powers in Jerusalem. In fact, it only fueled their resentment. And crazy in the ministry that happens because he goes into the temple, drives out, and then he starts healing. And it says the sick and the poor came to him. Even in that moment, and he demonstrated the nature of his kingdom in the temple, healing him. And the children begin to run around the temple premises as if it, the most innocent is now allowed into the most holy. And they cause chaos, shouting and celebrating because blind people can see and lame people can walk and even more of God's kingdom is present. And as the children see God's kingdom present, the powers believe they must end it now. And they vow that this time will go. The whole Easter event layered with power and with politics. Jesus isn't fooled. He knows what's coming. And even though for a moment in these prophetic acts of his as he goes and clears the temple, curses the fig tree, and all, there's so much symbolism I haven't got time for that today. Jesus has the upper hand for the moment. His ministry, his public acclamation, his acceptance. Why did Jesus not press home his advantage? Because to press home his advantage would have been to change the tone. You know, in Matthew 4, Jesus was told, do something spectacular, announce yourself, throw yourself at the top of the temple, let the angels catch you, and people will know who you are. Do whatever you can to find a kingdom that will avoid Easter, that will avoid the cross, that will avoid the real issue. What's the real issue? The sin of the world. What's the real issue? The sin in Christ. It's not the sin out there that ties me to negative stuff, that makes me wayward. Ultimately, if I can master what's going on inside of me, then that's what Jesus came to do. And he wasn't going to change the plan. He wasn't going to avoid the cross. And believe me, that temptation was completely real. In the garden, Jesus prayed, Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. But there wasn't a way to heal the world other than through the cross. And so there was a sense of seduction in this brief moment of success in which he would have been tempted to think, let's take this path. But he knows where it leads. In fact, he sits down in that week with his disciples and he says, Matthew 24, you see these big stones? That spirit 
that cheered me all the way into Jerusalem. This whole temple will be torn down if you go after that. And he prophesies. Now, you know, Peter tried to break this connection between his mission and the cross. Surely, Lord, you won't die. He says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the plan or the things of God, but the things of man. Why did Jesus need to do all this stuff? We're going to look at this again, Ben. We're going to look at this on, on Friday. Because without atoning for sin, there could be no new beginning. There could be no new birth. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You see, Jesus is determined still today to bring hope in the most uncertain of times. Explore. Could it not be that in these uncertain times, half of our anxiety is that we are also hoping for the wrong thing? We've also latched on to the world's definition of what success and safety will look like. And if we could only get rid of them and put people like me in, a, in their place, everything would be fine. Now, this wasn't what you signed up for when you came to church this morning, but I think half of our problem is that our hope is in the wrong things. And then we wonder why we're getting so disappointed and why we are feeling so terribly anxious about our country. You know, by the time the tragic events of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 foreseen so clearly and prophesied by Jesus, by the time that eventually came around, those who were following Jesus were bringing hope through a myriad of diverse healing communities penetrating and even starting to saturate the Roman Empire in a completely different way. And in these communities, Jews and Gentiles were coming together. Men, women, boys and girls were learning to hear the voice of God. And they were welcoming all the nations. And they were sharing their faith. And they were caring for the needy. And they were loving people into a new birth encounter with Jesus Christ. Know, even the Jews in, I mean, the Christian believing Jews, when, when, when that, that Jewish kingdom briefly appeared, Jesus had told them, run for the hills. This victory will kill you. Get out of there. And they did. They could see this wasn't the way of Jesus the Messiah. This wasn't the way of the kingdom of God. And they began to spread into that empire which came and wiped out that Jewish kingdom. They began to spread into that empire, a mercy and a grace. And it took longer, yes, but its outcome was far more transformative. You see, they were not seduced by the lies that tempted Jesus on this Palm Sunday. The lie that if we could just annihilate our enemies and, and find the power that they had, 
then we will somehow succeed. Go deep, deep in the deeply believed and internalized that they could trust God. They could trust his way. They could trust the cross. And they could do what he would do if he was in their place. How do we find hope in times of uncertainty? finish line of the sermon. We expose and get rid of our false hopes. They'll kill us. You take the enemy's tools and try and fight with them, the enemy will use them to crush you. We get rid of our false hopes. We get rid of the lies that tell us this is how you will win. This is how you will become powerful. This is how you will change the world. The early church model for us, this is how we win. This is how we change the world. This is how we find hope in the middle of uncertainty. 